This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let's go to John chapter 3. John's Gospel chapter 3. And we're going to pick it up so you can orient yourself at verse 9. We're walking through this gospel through very much of this year. And this is a great passage to be preaching today. I didn't set it up this way. It just happens. Sometimes it just happens this way. But probably the most famous, well-known Bible verse in all the world is John 3.16. People paint it on bed sheets and they hang it over their balconies. People hold it up on poster boards at sporting events and if you are have any kind of aptitude for sports at all you will know that we're going to play they're going to play the Super Bowl I said we're like I'm going to be playing the game later today they're going to be playing the Super Bowl later today and I bet if you watch and if you scan the crowd there's going to be somewhere in some way somebody holding up sign having painted on their t-shirt something like that you're going to see John 3:16 Today, on television, and cameras are going to broadcast it all over the world. I think something like a billion people watch the Super Bowl. And and here's what I was hoping and thinking. I hope that when somebody puts that somewhere in something and the cameras show it, somebody somewhere finally is curious. They may have even seen it a dozen or more times in their life, but I, I hope that they will get curious and they will Google it and they will read that God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life and somewhere someone would turn to Christ and repent of their sin and believe and so be saved for eternity today. And so here's what I think we should all do. As you watch the Super Bowl, pray that that would happen. Pray that that would happen as you watch the game. So watch the game. Pray. Pray that God would use that because I think somewhere, you're gonna, if it's not that, you're going to see a Bible verse, but I think it's going to be that one if you see one. And we're going to look at several verses this morning on either side of that, but I, I just thought, what a day to preach from John's gospel these famous words. And what I want to do I think this, this turned out different than I thought it would as I began preparing. I want to use all of our time, after kind of living in these verses, I want to use all of our time to ask one question and then let these verses answer it. And it's a question that will define your life. And if these verses are answering it, and I think they are, we must hear what they have to say. And I'll do my best to show you how how all of this is an answer to this question. Not just John 3.16, but throughout the passage. So this is the question that these verses are answering. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? If John 3.16 says, God loves the world, he gives his only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? And and now, you might hear that question 
And you might say, you're going to take the rest of the sermon to answer that one question. And in your first reaction might be, don't do that. Don't do that fix. Don't, don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. Let's just believe in Jesus. Don't go all theological on me. Don't go all scholarly on me. Don't, don't get it. Don't, don't make it too much. Let's not overcomplicate things. Just let me believe in Jesus. And here's what I'd say back to you if you're thinking that. Look at John 3.16. But this time, this is why I think we should ask this question. Look at John 3.16, but this, but this time let's read it backwards. Just start from the end and read it backwards. Have eternal life. That's what's at stake. Eternity. Not the game this afternoon. Not even your life as you know it in this world. Eternity. And then it says, should not perish. So it's possible to perish. Actually, it's so readily possible that Jesus is burdened that we would not. Whoever believes in him, so belief is critical. That's what unlocks not perishing but having eternal life is belief. It's the most critical thing we do. But I didn't say belief is the key thing in having eternal life. When I wrote this, the first time I wrote through the draft of this, I wrote belief is key. Belief is the key thing. And then I, and then I realized, no, it's not. Because if I keep reading backwards, if we keep reading backwards, there's one more key thing. There's one more thing. Our belief is critical. But there's one more thing, even more central than that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This all starts with God. We can say that, that it all starts with God, because if God didn't love the world, if God didn't give his son, there would be nothing for us to believe in. So our belief is crucial to having eternal life But eternal life is first of all given, is possible because God loves and because God gives. So in other words, we couldn't have any belief if it was God who did not first initiate a giving love. And so it does not overly complicate our faith to ask what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Because it's God who acts, it's actually God who gives belief, and it's God himself who is the object of our belief. Believe in Jesus. You can have earnest faith. You can have heartfelt faith. You can have warm, open faith. But friends, if your faith isn't in Jesus, it's misplaced. And one of the things that I have to tell you is it's not useful. Your faith must be in Jesus to have eternal life. So it's not complicating to ask what does it mean to believe in Jesus. It's simplifying. It gives shape to our faith 
because this question is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And because this question starts with what God has done, to ask this question is first of all to worship. This is a question for worship. It's a question of delight in God. It's to bore down deep, not to get lost, but to marvel in the great things of God. Uh, I saw a video yesterday of a hole that they've cut that goes over two miles deep into the ice in in Antarctica. The ice that has been built up over time is more than two miles deep. They've dug a, a hole and then they've put a camera, they've fed a camera down to study the ice. And I know what you're thinking, study the ice, stop, I can barely handle all that excitement. That's what I thought. And then I watched the camera goes down. And I heard what they learned through studying the ice. The ice has different textures and it has different shades and it has patterns and it begins to swirl and there are rings to the ice. And and you could see in it what was obvious to me and what I saw when I looked at this was the great work of God, which is the great creativity, the great power, the great might of God in forming something that's almost impenetrable. But you can see down and you see actually what you're seeing kind of is is the history of this world. And you can't see that if you just stand on the surface. It just looks like ice. So don't settle for a surface level view of your faith and just say, oh, I believe in Jesus. That's good and wonderful. We can sing songs about how Jesus loves us so, for that's what the Bible tells us, and that is right and it is good. Let us not, as the Bible says, think that that is what we need to move on from. We should always delight in the simple things of our faith. But let us also delight in the deep things of our faith. Let us also ask, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Let me just, I'll just give us three things throughout the rest of our time this morning. So let's go to verse 9, chapter 3. This begins the second half of a conversation that Jesus is having with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is called a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. And that's plenty for us to know to figure out that Nicodemus was a smart, religiously serious man. In fact, uh, you'd be unlikely to find anybody who took their faith more seriously than this guy in first century Israel. And he's come to Jesus to investigate him and his teaching. Probably he's been sent, but I think he's also personally curious, maybe volunteered for the job. Jesus is growing in, in popularity, He's getting a following. Nicodemus, the people that Nicodemus is with, want to know what this is all about. And so they begin a conversation. What confuses Nicodemus is the way that Jesus talks about what Nicodemus needs from God. Now in Nicodemus' view, in his world, what you needed from God can really be summarized as two things. You needed purchased mercy for your confessed sin and you needed favor as a reward for your obedience. Purchased mercy 
for confessed sin, favor as a reward for your obedience. And, and for a man like Nicodemus, he would have assumed because he was ultra obedient, he needed relatively little mercy. Jesus tells him he needs really to start with neither of those two things. He needs something else entirely. Jesus says that Nicodemus must be born again. Or another way is saying, it could be translated, Nicodemus needs to be born from above. What Nicodemus needs is what we all need. And we're never going to find it through self-inspection or self-discipline or self-sacrifice because we don't have what we need. Only God has what we need. We need a new birth. We need a birth from above. Not a physical birth, but a spiritual one. And Nicodemus has no idea how to take that. He has no categories for that. And that's where we left off. And so let's pick it up. Verse 9, kind of the second half of this conversation. So Nicodemus says to Jesus, verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things. So first, let me stop. I'm not going to do this with every verse, but let me just stop here. First of all, if you go back and look at what the new birth is, it's not something completely unexpected. Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel. In other words, you are an Old Testament scholar, well-versed in the scriptures, having taught them to others. This shouldn't be a surprise to you. You should see that you were going to need this particularly in places like Jeremiah, you should have seen that you need a new birth. You need a new heart. Ezekiel says the same thing. Now, what we need to see here is the contrast that John is drawing between Nicodemus and Jesus. John loves contrasts. Night and day, light and dark, blindness and sight. He loves to play with word pictures to draw distinctions between particularly two ideas. John wants us to see this is the best Israel has to offer. Nicodemus is the best Israel. He's a scholar. He's obedient. He's a teacher of the people. He's a religious leader. This is the faith that Israel has built for itself. This is all that it has to offer right there in Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee rigidly following the rules studying the scriptures, believing he could impress God, even, even believing he could kind of draw out God with his obedience. Yet John wants us to see that Jesus is something so much better. Jesus is not only the better teacher, Jesus understands salvation itself. Nicodemus has no idea how to be saved. In fact, when Jesus tells him, this is what you need, Nicodemus says, huh? What? And Jesus says, I'm not even able to explain this to you. Your whole system is built so that you're not even able to see this. He says, you're not seeing any of this the right way. That's what happens in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I, told you, if I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So there's our first in this passage mention of this eternal life. So verse, verse 12, just going back a few, is where Jesus is starting to explain to Nicodemus that what he's been doing isn't actually going to help him get closer to God. Nicodemus' whole life is built on convincing himself and other people that he's really close to God. And right now Jesus is saying none of what you're doing is what is not only pleasing to God, but it's not going to help you be any nearer to him. In order to understand this, we have to admit something. And that's that apart from the intervention of God, we're all prone to be like Nicodemus. We have a self-made, self-celebrating idea of who God is and what he's like. And without God intervening, we're never going to know the truth. And the truth is that God reveals himself. And we must believe, here's your first thing coming up, we must believe in him as revealed, not some man-made version of God. I want to swim against the stream a little bit of some cultural analysis that I see a lot lately. So I hear and I read all these articles, and, and I see all these studies about growing percentages of people that these sort of surveys say don't believe in God anymore. They're called the nuns. No religious affiliation, no faith, no God. And so I, I see numbers like percentage-wise in the 20s. Even I've seen it start to creep into the lower 30s. People who aren't, don't consider themselves religious in any way, not part of a faith tradition. But let me interpret these numbers a little bit differently for us. Just because 25, 30% of people are now saying they don't believe in God or they don't consider themselves any part of any faith tradition doesn't mean that 25 or 30% of people don't believe in something. When I talk to people, when I read, when I see what people are posting online, social media, when, I, when I'm talking to people in person, it's so rare. I would say almost never that there is a pure atheism. Even in agnosticism, okay, atheism, no God, agnosticism, maybe a God, but he's uninterested and, and uninvolved. Almost everybody has a version of, of a faith in something or someone, but it's made in their own image. They've come up with an idea, they've come up with a system, they've come up with a way of understanding things that they've put their faith and hope in. And, and what do you know? It's always a system that celebrates them just the way they are. It's always a system that agrees with their belief set. It's always a system that says they are great and they're killing it just the way they are right now. And outside of the intervening grace of God, we do the exact same thing. 
And so when we talk about belief, in order to have right belief, the first thing that we need to do is believe in God according to who he tells us he is. Not some knockoff, discount, made-up version of a God or of a faith or of a worldview that we've created to help ourselves feel better. So when you say, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's what does it mean to believe? It's believing in Jesus, the Jesus revealed by the one true God in the word of God. And here's the great news. God has willingly, readily, eagerly told us exactly who he is. Not that we can understand every bit of him, but he has given us plenty to understand of him so that we can know him and be faithful to him and live forever. Friends, the gospel is not some secret. The gospel, God has put the good news of Jesus Christ out there for everybody to know and believe. And one of the most incredible truths about the salvation that God offers people is he makes it so simple to see and accept. It doesn't mean the gospel is easy. It certainly doesn't mean it's cheap. But it can be freely, and here's how it's uncomplicated. It can be uncomplicatedly believed. And you can be uncomplicatedly saved. Because God has purchased those who are in Christ at great cost to himself. According to a plan that he's been arranging since before the foundation of the world. So that now... And let's hold two truths in tension here. The gospel is simple and free to us because God has won it at a great price. And so you can believe in Jesus Christ because God has made Christ known, he's made Christ available, and he's made salvation free to you. So what must we simply, uncomplicatedly do? Jesus has told us, tells us here, look to the Son of Man lifted up. Uh, John also loves repetitive statements. He's got three big ones lifted up. The Son of Man lifted up comes up three times in the Gospel of John. This is the first one. It's always used to describe Jesus' death. And the picture is that he's going to be put up sort of high so he can be looked at. And then he references, he sort of illustrates through a time in their nation's history before the people came into the land, which is known as the promise on the place they currently live. And for a generation, they roamed in the desert. And as that people, many years ago for them, tried to understand what it meant to, to live as the covenant people of God and to live in faith and to, to live with him as their God and to not take gods in their own image, and to not worship gods that were worshipped by foreign nations around them, they would often fall away into idolatry. They would mix worship of the one true God with other gods. They would grumble against God. They would, they would do things that would, would uh, prove their unfaithfulness. And so at one point, as a way of doing three things, one as a way of judging, two as a way of instructing, and three as a way of sending mercy, what God does is he puts serpents, snakes, among the people. And what would happen is if you were bitten by one of the serpents, you would begin to die. 
So remember, judgment, instruction, mercy. That's the judgment part. If you were bitten by one of these serpents, you'd begin to die. You can't worship things on the side while saying that you worship the true God. You shall have no other gods before me. But then, remember there's instruction, God begins to teach the people and show his mercy. He says, I can save you. And so what he does is he directs their leader, Moses, to take a pole, and Moses makes a bronze serpent, and he puts it on the pole, and then he stands the pole up high, and he tells the people, if anybody is bitten by a real, one of these real serpents, look at the bronze serpent, and you'll be healed. Honestly, it's as simple as that. It, it, you can find this, you can, this is in Numbers 21. It's just the first nine verses of Numbers 21. Read it this afternoon. It's that simple. And then it's over after that. I mean, it's just kind of over in the history of God's people. So all they have to do is look at the gracious gift of God and they would be restored to life. And Jesus says, just like that, he's going to be lifted up. And in order to be spared from death and have life, People need to look at him. So that's the second thing that defines belief in Jesus. You have to look at him and to him and only him for life. Believing in Jesus means you know the seriousness of your sinful condition, that, 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 there, that there is a poison, a venom. But now we know it's, it's not from something that's bitten us. We're not bitten by sin and then infected by it. It's already on the inside. It's already in us. And our only hope for life is to look at Jesus lifted up on the cross as the one who heals. To look at Jesus as the one who crushes. God also plays with uh, a lot of metaphors throughout and, and uses a lot of imagery. In Genesis 3, in Genesis 2, there's a serpent that comes and deceives the first man and the first woman. And then what Genesis 3 says is God's going to send one one day who crushes the head of the serpent, grinds the serpent's head under his heel. Jesus is the one who crushes the serpent. In the wilderness, the serpent bit, a bronze serpent was lifted up. Jesus comes to be the one who crushes the serpent. Now here's more good news. Everybody who looks at Jesus is saved. Everybody who looks upon him, not just kind of gaze with your eyes, but everybody who looks at him, believing in him, they will see life, will find it. Nobody's turned away from Jesus. Nobody who says, Jesus, save me, is turned away. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever not the religiously serious, not the varsity team Christians. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Folks, when Jesus is there, it's good. So many people see in Christ condemnation. It's because they're not seeing him well. It's because they're not seeing him rightly. 
He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to save it, us. 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does believe, does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest, he, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This could be like seven sermons, just a few things here. So the first thing that belief in Jesus means is believing in God as he reveals himself. That's number one. Number two, second thing is to believe that looking at Jesus is our only hope for life. And here's the third thing. Believing in Jesus means that we love the light. These last verses are working back to what John has already said in his introduction of Jesus in chapter 1. Jesus is light breaking into a dark world, and anyone who sees that loves him and loves the light, loves the light that's come through him, loves that he's come, but anybody who does not love him rejects him, and it's actually darkness that it says that they prefer. So what's being laid out here for us is just really the true nature of humanity. Apart from a light outside of ourselves, we prefer darkness. That's just the truth. Apart from something that comes outside of ourselves, we prefer darkness. And here's what you have to do to believe in Jesus and be a Christian. You have to be able to admit that. You have to be able to admit that apart from the light that is Christ, I actually want the dark. I actually prefer the dark. Uh, as Christians, we don't celebrate our sin. So let's be clear on that. We do not celebrate our sin, but we do something that's really counterintuitive to the rest of the world. We gladfully and joyfully and openly admit that we are broken, contrite sinners and we even admit that we have the propensity to want to live in the dark and to admit that if it were up to us, we would just kind of happily sit down in the dark and stay there and shrivel up and die there. But thanks be to God that he that it isn't up to us. Thanks be to God that he doesn't allow us to do that, that he shines light into the darkness and shows us our true condition. And so there is this paradox to being a Christian where we hate our sin. We no longer want it to be any part of us, but we should never get very far away from saying that we are sinners. Our sin should be throw, is thrown by God far away from us, but we should regularly confess it. We should regularly remember that we're sinners. We should regularly be saying, I, apart from the grace of Christ, yet not I, but through Christ in me, if it were not for Christ, I would be a ruined sinner, but thanks be to God, this is what he has saved me from. So that's the paradox of the Christian life. Not celebrating our sin, but regularly reminding ourselves that I, 
am by nature and choice a sinner. But God has given me a new birth and in that a new nature and so I am one no longer. When you talk with someone about what it means to be a Christian, you can't forget the part where you were dead in sin, living in darkness, and not at all bothered by it. You kind of liked it. But then you were shown light, and now you love light. Because that's the third thing. Belief in Jesus means that you love the light. John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so Christians love the light. To believe in Christ is to love him. And to believe in Christ is more even to believe that he has loved you. For God so loved the world. So when we look at what does it mean to believe in Jesus... We can say those three things. Believing God as he's revealed himself to be. Believing that we have to look to Jesus for our only hope in life. Believing that light is better than darkness. But under all of those, before all of those, around all of those, what makes all of those possible is to believe that he has loved us first. To believe that he has initiated our love for him. And that can be much harder. I think we can believe that I could choose to love. Christ is lovely. He's easy to love. But to believe that God initiated that by first loving us, that can be harder. Because we find ourselves, and can be, especially when we understand our true nature, unlovable. We find ourselves unlovable. So how do we reconcile that? For God so loved the world. To everybody here, I'd say this. Some of you might understand this. Some of you might, might hope in this and, and, and find your joy in this. And, and you might have kind of conquered this hurdle, left over this years and years ago. You might genuinely believe that God loves you. And praise God, live in that and, and love that. But if you are here, and you are struggling to believe that God could love you, here's how I want to orient you for just this minute. God doesn't love you for you. Follow me in this. God doesn't love you for you, and this is good news actually. He doesn't love you for you. He loves you for him. He is love. His character is love. All that he does proceeds, and all that he is proceeds from his love. And so if you were to, how could God love me? Don't worry, friend. God doesn't love you for you. God loves you because he is love. His love for you isn't dependent on you. His love for you isn't contingent upon you. His love for you doesn't proceed from anything that you've done. It's not even in response to anything that you do. God loves you because of who he is, and his character is love. His perfection is love. He exists in and from love. And so God loves you. Jesus saves us, not because of who we are, 
but because of who he is. That's God's character. That's who our God is. And so if you've come in wondering, how can God love me? The answer is really because he is love. All that he does is love. And so if you're struggling with that, uh, there's a, a book that I'd recommend, and I can recommend it to you later, but, but I'd love to talk with you. If, you're, if you struggle with how can God love me, I would love to talk with you. Our elders would love to talk to you. Somebody here that you know to be a mature Christian would love to talk with you. But let's just leave it here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Looks like this. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? To believe God as he's revealed himself to be. Not some man-made version. Second, to look to Jesus as the only hope for life. And, And third, to love light. Not that we've brought ourselves out of it, but but God has shown light into the darkness. And so we've thought, oh my gosh, I've been in darkness, I didn't even know it. And then to begin to love because of who he is. Christ is life, in him is light. In him is the light of men. Some people will continue to love the darkness, but thanks be to God, he's shown us how to love the light. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be a people who love light. And we're not going to do that by asking how we can love light more or how we can love light better. We will love light when we look to you. So may we, by the mercy of Christ, be quickened, and enabled and led to look to Christ who is the light. Through him, in the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.